In December of 2016, the body of 21-year-old Matthew Grant Rattlesnake was found brutally beaten and murdered in an alleyway between the College Homes and South Glacier Homes neighborhoods in Browning, Montana. His body was found on Blackfeet Territory on the reservation two weeks after his disappearance. Law enforcement took 10 days to get involved in the search for him after his family spent endless days and hours posting flyers, missing posters, and searching on their own. Little has been made known publicly, as we have seen over the last few episodes, the focus has not been on missing and murdered Native Americans, and thus the only national news coverage has been recent. However, this recent coverage has been centered around the lack of resources, lack of media attention, and lack of communication pertaining to those who have gone missing from the Blackfeet Nation, as well as other reservations around the country. I'm your host, Katherine Galvin true crime lover, seeker of justice, and intuitive medium, and this is Murder and Mediumship. Before we dive fully into this case, I'd like to take a moment to thank my listeners and those who pledge my Patreon in support of the show. I've added a PayPal link to the show notes for anyone who would like to donate in support of production of this show without making a monthly pledge. Thank you for the review, MacT97, who writes, this is an amazing listen and gives you details that you would never guess. If you like true crime, this is a podcast for you. And if you're hearing this review, you're already listening. So get on over there and drop a quick review while you're listening. Thank you so, so much, MACT. I love these reviews, guys. Keep them coming. They allow this podcast to reach the ears of so many, and that allows these lost voices to be heard. Please send any show requests to Katherine Galvin at katherineintuitive.com. A lot of you have been sending them to my Instagram and Facebook, and that's awesome too. If you can gravitate toward Instagram, I can guarantee that they will get filed more quickly. Um, with that being said, we're getting back to the case. Matthew Grant was born in Alberta, Canada on October 31st, 1995. He was the firstborn to Ray Grant and Eileen Rattlesnake. When his parents separated, his mom stayed in Canada and his dad moved down to Browning, Montana. He spent his time split living with both parents, but preferred to be surrounded by family on his dad's side down in Browning. In October of 2016, he would make the move permanently to Browning, Montana. His aunt Rhonda Grant Connolly drove him down from Canada to her home in Browning, where he would stay with her for the next two months. From what it would seem... Everyone remembers Matthew as someone who made everyone he was with feel worthwhile, seen, heard, special, really, really appreciated. And he gave those that he loved his undivided attention and adored spending time with his family and friends, and from what I understand, especially his young cousins. Matthew was beyond thrilled to have made the move to Browning from Canada and believed he was moving to what he described to his aunt as a better life than the one he had in Canada and seemingly than one he could create for himself in Canada. On the day that Matthew disappeared, a man knocked at the front door of Rhonda's home while a blonde-haired woman waited in a small black pickup truck in the driveway. When Rhonda went to tell Matthew that someone was at the door for him, Matthew was described by her as jumping up when the man stepped up into his room. He then headed out with this man who remains unnamed, but I'm fairly certain everyone knows who he is and who this blonde-haired woman are. It just hasn't been released publicly as they haven't been charged with anything. Matthew told his aunt that he'd be right back, but he never made his way back home. This was December 14th, 2016. 
The family began searching for Matthew almost right away, and they knew something just didn't feel right or make sense. Matthew wouldn't just disappear, and the way he had left just felt so strange to his Aunt Rhonda. This story has such little detail that, again, has been made available, so I'm going to let you know from the start that I'll be doing as much filling in of the gaps as I feel called to, but if you've listened to this before, you know that I also will not create anything that I'm not immediately getting very clear intuitive hits on. That being said, I do feel that when this man walked into Matthew's room, I feel like the description of Matthew jumping up isn't necessarily just the way that she's describing him getting off of his bed, but like he jumped up quickly, maybe with some surprise to see him there. Like he doesn't feel like he was an expected visitor and he definitely moved quickly to go with this person in a way that seems as if maybe he had some business to take care of like quickly and that he'd be right back. Matthew wasn't necessarily afraid, though, of what was going to happen. It's not like this guy came in and was taking him hostage. He went willingly. And I really feel like without fear, I feel like he didn't realize that anything horrific was about to happen. Or if he was aware of something coming, I don't think he could have expected what did eventually happen. So with no experience at all in searching for missing persons, Rhonda and her family took to social media looking for support from the community. As police assumed that Matthew was simply out partying and would come back when he was ready, an assumption that was made all too often on reservations, and as we've seen in a lot of cases with missing young adults and missing teenagers, families started searching vacant lots, alleys, and vacant homes because they just didn't know what else to do. They were doing grid searches, trying to figure out how to do them safely without people getting lost in in snowy blizzards. Because again, this is December in Montana. And if you're not used to what a blizzard is, I mean, you're really, you can lose sight of where you are very quickly in like a whiteout or something like that. And it can be very dangerous. So Belinda Bullshoe and Diana Bird offered to help. Rhonda was more than ready to accept their help. Belinda is a well-known native fashion designer and Diana Bird is a local educator. And both of them are a part of the Silent Warrior Coalition, which is an, excuse me, is an organization dedicated to helping those whose families are suffering from drug or alcohol abuse problems and the issues that coincide with such abuse. I do um, think that as of late, as of recent, they have also really taken to helping people who have missing relatives or have unsolved murders such as this within the reservations. Together, they began researching how to orchestrate effective grid searches, something law enforcement should have been doing, but wasn't. So we know we talked about jurisdiction in the last episode. If you didn't listen, go back and listen to that episode. None of my episodes are that long, so it's easy to listen through. But this is the one that we talked about the disappearance of Ashley Loring Heavy Runner. The jurisdiction is either in the hands of local and tribal law enforcement courts or the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the FBI, and law enforcement all share jurisdiction. And this second one is the case with the Blackfeet Reservation. According to Blackfeet Tribal Police Chief Jess Edwards, the Blackfeet law enforcement has asked for more funding from the BIA, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, but has yet to receive it. I believe I read they're receiving about $2 million in funding a year. They have 24 law enforcement officers who are responsible for an area the size of the state of Delaware. They're short on resources, short on bodies, and short on funds. Their responsibilities include everything from emergency response on the reservation to assisting with border patrol between the U.S. and Canadian border and during tourist seasons, managing the tourists who come to Glacier National Park. And again, this is 1.5 million acres of reservation left to the hands of 24 sworn in police officers. And also, 
I can only imagine that this border between the U.S. and Canada can't be patrolled that effectively if if it's left to 24 law enforcement officers responsible for this area, then border patrol isn't their primary concern. So I know that they're just helping with border patrol, but I have to wonder how well this is monitored regardless. People talk all the time about the Mexican and the American border, but I really feel like there's there's got to be a lot of drug trafficking and human trafficking that happens at this border as well, especially when it's in such um, wild and empty and cold country, right? So anyway, this is left to the hands of 24 sworn in police officers. And when researching Ashley's case, I was finding that they had only 17 officers. Um, I know she went missing after Matthew's murder, but whether it's 17 or 24, it's still nowhere near enough bodies to cover all of those responsibilities over such a vast amount of land. And again, the BIA funds tribal police, all while being chronically underfunded as well. It's in fact, if you recall, if you didn't listen to that, then I'll tell you again. It's one of the lowest funded, the most underfunded um, branches, not branches, but um, pieces of government because I can't think of the word that I'm looking for right now. But And then it's also expected to fund these small tribal police departments and it, it just doesn't have the resources. So I want to speak really quickly. I want to take a a break. I know we're only a couple minutes in, but into this episode and talk about the Thanksgiving holiday coming up. I would really like to invite all of you to consider the people who lived here before us. Look into what indigenous people were in your area and how exactly they were treated with the arrival of Europeans and other explorers and settlers. Educate yourself on what it was truly like for them and what changed for them as their land was taken over bit by bit. I know I talked about it a little bit in the Ashley episode, Ashley Loring Heavy Runner, how the U.S. government slowly but surely took everything from Blackfeet Nation under the guise of peaceful treaties and land purchases. But teach yourself more of the history that you may not have and likely didn't receive in school growing up. I recall our uh, local education was in, I want to say, the fourth grade, and we learned about local Native Americans then. But I mean, come on, you're still, you're what, 10 years old then? I really hope that I'm just forgetting a large part of my high school career, but really, truly teach yourself more of the history that you didn't receive in school. And if you have small children, I can definitely recommend a few children's books that I have purchased and I'm really enjoying reading to my kids about colonialism and forced assimilation of Native Americans. One of them is called When We Were Alone, written by David A. Robertson and Julie Flett. Now, this book brings awareness and opens conversations to shifts and changes in culture that were not welcomed, but forced upon Native Americans as well as Native Canadians. The book is really beautifully written and illustrated. In fact, the illustrations are probably some of my favorite I've seen in a children's book, but it's the perfect time of the year to read it with your kids, especially while at school, they're only learning one convoluted side of things. I have to say, when my four-year-old brought home a picture of Native Americans and pilgrims sitting all happily together, I winced. I went so hard because there's so much that they're not learning. And obviously, keep it age appropriate, but teach the truth. Teach the whole truth about things, not just these little snippets of our version of events that made it to the history books. So do a little bit of research. Find find some highly recommended books. My kids are between the ages of one and six. So this book was great for them, but if it's not, if it's too young for your kids or your nieces or nephews or whoever, or even for yourself to learn something that you may not have knowledge on, 
grab a couple of those and get reading this holiday season. So regardless, and excuse my voice, I feel like is a little croaky today, but anyway, they told Rhonda and her family that it was likely Matthew was out partying and that law enforcement neglected to get involved until 10 days after Matthew's family attempted to report him missing. All the while, his family was investigating rumors that they were hearing while receiving resistance from those feeling like they were being accused of being involved with Matthew's disappearance, all something law enforcement should have been handling. Now, Savannah's act was yet to be passed, and this act is supposed to be helping with guidelines and protocols for law enforcement, which hopefully it has. At this time, though, it was all too easy to be ignored and fall through the cracks in assuming that another part of law enforcement or someone with jurisdiction would be handling this case. His family did ask for help from several local authorities, including the local sheriff's department, but they declined in helping as they did not have jurisdiction. Glacier County Search and Rescue also declined to help with the search itself as they didn't have jurisdiction on the reservation either. Matthew's family was reached out to as well by other community members looking to help support them who continue to walk with them today, carrying posters of him throughout the country and educating others on the crisis of missing Native Americans, who, by the way, for as much as we talk about missing Native women, statistically, there are even more missing Native American men. In Montana, Native Americans make up only 7% of the population, but are 26% of missing people. I mean, those numbers, that's brutal. From 2017 to 2019, 80% of those missing Native Americans were under the age of 18. And if you recall from other cases, when you report someone as a runaway or saying that maybe they're just out partying, it really, it kind of muddies the water and people don't want to look for them because they assume that they're just off misbehaving or that they wanted to leave. But when you are under the age of 18, when you are still really even around 18, you're still a child and it is still the governments and local authorities and any adult, really their responsibility to make sure that you are safe. So as I stated in the beginning of this episode, on December 31st, 2016, Matthew's body was found in a housing development alleyway by law enforcement. This is just days after they got involved in the search. And you really have to wonder, had they gotten involved sooner? Had they followed up on leads? Had they listened to these rumors? Maybe things could have gone differently. He was brutally beaten and frozen with icicles in his hair, partially covered in snow with his shirt pulled up as if someone had tossed him there. This is what kills me. When I felt into this initially, I saw him being beaten. And again, I'm going to try to be as minimal in the graphic details that I share as it's not something I would ever want to stumble upon and listen to as a family member, but his story itself needs to get out there. So when I pictured him, he was laying like on the cold ground being snowed on and it appeared that he was in clothing that was not sufficient for the weather that he was lost in, as if to say really that he didn't anticipate being out in the cold too. So with so many rumors and being such a small town, Rhonda has expressed to local news stations that she has trouble really going anywhere and seeing people now because it's easier to stay away from them. She talks about how she may not know exactly who was involved, though they seem to have a good idea. She does know that there were a lot, there were a lot of people and a lot that was involved in his disappearance and his murder. Many locals go on to say that this group of people seems to run the area, that law enforcement is not in charge, but that these people are and that no one seems to do anything about it. 
And I want to emphasize that this is my intuitive insight that I'm speaking with now. This is not fact. This has not been stated anywhere on the internet or otherwise, but I feel, and trust me, in digging to research for this case, trying to find anything outside of small news sources, outside of that he was found brutally beaten, and also in some areas have read that the way that he was beaten and what was done to him was so brutal that it hasn't been released to the public for that reason either, regardless of the fact that it is, yes, also still an open investigation. I feel that these people had something to do with the drug trade on reservations. And though I'm not quite sure what their connection is to Matthew, I don't necessarily think he was involved with them, at least not them in particular. Initially feeling into it, I did feel something around him being in the wrong place at the wrong time, which makes a little sense as he only been in the area for roughly two months, which could be the wrong place that I was hearing referenced. But according to his aunt, he was only ever with cousins and other families. So when he left without any of them and he couldn't be found with any of them, that's when she knew something was wrong because he didn't really have friends there. And even more so when he didn't come home after stating he would be back soon. I also felt that he may have been wrapped up with the wrong people, but I don't think he knew. I almost like, I don't want to say that he was naive, but I I, I want to say that he was naive. I don't think that he really knew who he was hanging around as he was starting to make friends. I, I think that maybe they were friendly, but they weren't necessarily friends. And I have to wonder if it was part of why he left Canada to get away from that short sort of like shady lifestyle or the people he was being exposed to or what it was. But I really got a sense of him running from where he was, that he, excuse me, hadn't got far enough away. And when I felt into this case, I didn't know anything other than he had been murdered and I had seen a photo of him where he was able to see his eyes. And I felt that he was taken to the cold and was badly beaten in a more desolate area. Like you could see mountains around. And I know, I know there are mountains all over Montana, blah, blah, blah. That's an easy one, but it's not like they were far in the distance. They were more... Um, they were closer to where he was and he was in kind of more of like a clearing. It was less of an urban area. So this would have been like deeper into the reservation, I'm guessing. But I also felt him being physically kicked in the stomach and I could see him in a position on the ground trying to kind of like protect his head and stomach at the same time. I did hear someone saying, you know why? But I don't think that Matthew did actually know why. Like I said, what's interesting to me and maybe to some of you is that with mediumship, the spirit you're contacting doesn't have to communicate back with you. It's much like making a phone call. If they don't want to answer, they don't have to. And this case really bothers me even more than some others, largely because there's so much that I can't see that I feel his presence, but that he won't show me. And this is common with if you've ever had a reading with me or with any psychic, you might hear them ask like, was so-and-so a private person? Because often who they were in living can kind of mirror who they are in spirit. So they may not want to share information with you as readily in spirit because maybe they were private in their, in their living life as well, their living life. So connecting with him was more difficult. I could feel him, but I didn't feel he was really looking to communicate with me. And sometimes this happens where there's shame around something. Um, But I can't even say honestly that I felt like there was a lot of shame. It did feel like something was being hidden, but I don't get the feeling that he was involved in things that he shouldn't have been involved with. And if he was, I don't think he knew what he was getting himself into. In looking into Relisha Rudd's disappearance and connecting to Emmett Till, connecting to Brittany Drexel, even to Lacey Peterson, Cody Lee Johnson, some of the other cases I've looked into, I could see 
so much of their story playing out. With the murder of Matthew Grant, though, I can't see nearly as much, and I don't want to pretend as if I can. So knowing what I can see, and more psychically as well, because like I said, he wasn't really communicating with me. The people who he went with, he felt surprised to see them, but not like he thought he would never see his family again. There wasn't a fear around it. I think he was set up. I think that he was lured away, and I think it largely had to do it feels almost like it could have been racially motivated because of him being Blackfeet Indian, that he was taken somewhere else for a number of days where he was badly beaten and mistreated and eventually dumped where he was found. I don't believe he was killed where he was found. The people who took him, I feel could have connections to higher officials, either in law enforcement or possibly even within the reservation, like corrupt members, people who might be tied into the drug trade itself which is rampant on reservations because of the lackluster law enforcement. The law enforcement knows who's responsible. And I don't believe that at least local law enforcement does, but I don't believe that any moves will be made to make any arrests as even with the increase in press coverage, it's still not nearly enough to put the pressure on law enforcement, no matter how high or low in government they are. The people who did this know how support from law enforcement lacks on the reservation, and they knew that they could get away with what they did. And I guarantee that Matthew is not their only victim, nor will he be their last. Because of the lack of help from law enforcement, the community began to show up in big ways for Ashley Loring Heavy Runner, for Matthew Grant, the community grid searches, the outpouring of help on social media, and then eventually the passing of Savannah's Act by Congress a few years later has helped make small improvements on reservations. But like I've said before, it hasn't been enough. More resources are needed, more training is needed, and more money is needed. And for that to happen, higher government officials need to feel more pressure, which means mainstream media and other outlets, other crime podcasts, other small news agencies, YouTube channels, they need to be the squeaky wheel. It's up to us to make these changes. Timothy Davis of the Blackfeet Tribal Business Council wrote to the Biden administration in 2021, and I'm going to read to you what his letter says. It is addressed to the Attorney General, and it cites the disappearance of Ashley Loring Heavy Runner, as well as a number of other missing and murdered Blackfeet Indians. And I really feel that even the writing of this letter speaks to how Savannah's act hasn't helped as much as it was hoping that it would. But also, you're going to hear Gabby Petito mentioned, who was a young white female who went missing in the mountains, I believe in Wyoming, and they found her within a few weeks of her disappearance, and her disappearance made national headlines. You can read about Gabby Petito everywhere. And as a result of her death, her family had asked those who had underrepresented cases such as these with you're finding with Native Americans, with people in the BIPOC community, they asked that you use Gabby's name, hashtag Gabby Petito, when sharing these murders in these cases because the amount of traction she was getting on the media, if you searched hashtag Gabby Petito, it would automatically, you would get taken to these other articles about these other missing cases that weren't getting attention and using that hashtag was helping to get their names out there, which is is a really cool thing. It's, it's very tragic, but it's also great that her family could even see and recognize what was wrong with this picture and the lack of coverage that these other people were getting. And I can't remember where it was that I read it, but I do remember reading 
about one of the walks for Matthew Grant for Ashley Lauren Heavy Runner and how when they were out there searching for Gabby, someone had said to one of the Native women, they're looking for Gabby. She's the only missing person out in those mountains. And the Native American woman said, she's the only missing white girl in those mountains. And I think that really speaks to what the problem is here. So anyway, I digress. I'm going to continue and read the letter to the attorney general written by Blackfeet Tribal Business Council member Timothy Davis to the Biden administration in October of 2021. Excuse my dry voice, you guys. I'm so sorry. Dear Attorney General Garland, Secretary Holland, and Chairman Schatz, and Director Ray, Re Ashley Loring Heavy Runner and the appalling rates of unsolved murder and missing Indigenous women and girls cases in Montana. On December 12, 2018, Kimberly Loring Heavy Runner testified before the U.S. Senate Committee on Indian Affairs and shared heart-wrenching details about the Loring Heavy Runner family search for Ashley Loring Heavy Runner, Kimberly's sister. At the time, Ashley, a Blackfeet tribal member, had been missing for 18 months. Despite many earnest expressions of concern by U.S. Senators on the committee, nearly three years later, there has been no apparent progress and Ashley's case remains where it was, unsolved and languishing on an FBI hard drive. Before I keep reading, I would like to say I realize that this is about Ashley, not Matthew, but they are from the same reservation and their families have actually been in great support of each other in traveling to speak to Senate, to Congress, to politicians wherever they can, and to educating people both on and off of the reservation. So this is absolutely relevant to this episode. And I'm going to continue. Ashley was a vibrant 20-year-old woman when she disappeared. As Kimberly reminded the committee, Ashley matters, and we shouldn't have to be here and plead to make us important, she said. To that I add, Ashley continues to matter, and contrary to perceived indifference of multiple law enforcement agencies, all missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls continue to matter. In her testimony, Kimberly outlined some of the glaring errors and discrepancies of Tribal Bureau, Bureau of Indian American Oh my goodness, Bureau of Indian Affairs and FBI investigators in Ashley's case that left the Loring Heavy Runner family to essentially lead and carry the burden of the search for Ashley, much like Matthew Grant's family. Kimberly recounts many of these horrendous failings in the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls documentary, Somebody's Daughter. There is no better time to raise this matter as a new version of the film is about to be released, which features President Biden. I have listened to President Biden's words in the film, and I have little doubt that he would agree that decisive action is not only urgently needed, but long overdue. In Somebody's Daughter, I demand an investigation into Ashley's case, and with this letter, I reiterate that with an official request for an immediate investigation into every facet of this flawed case, I also call for a renewed focus and effort to resolve this tragic situation. The Loring Heavy Runner family has suffered for too long. Chairperson of his 2020 presidential campaign, Ambassador Kathy Russell, to represent him at the first ever Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women Tribunal held in the U.S. was hosted by Blackfeet Nation in association with the Global Indigenous Council. Two members of President Biden's cabinet, Secretary Holland and Secretary Buttigieg, expressed their support for the tribunal in letters to me and Rain, the director of Somebody's Daughter, who was integrally involved in the tribunal. The Global Indigenous Council, under the leadership of its president, Blackfeet tribal member Tom Rogers, also initiated the first national 
Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women billboard campaign in the U.S., which was designed by Rain and is supported by Secretary Holland when she was a member of Congress. This campaign included billboards raising awareness for Ashley's case. It is high time that law enforcement demonstrated a similar level of commitment as these individuals who have made heroic efforts to bring justice for not only Ashley, but many missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls victims. Montana has an appalling rate of these cases. Indigenous people account for 6.7% of the state's population, but comprise some 26% of the missing persons cases. 86% of missing and murdered Indigenous people cases in Montana remained unsolved. Bighorn County has the highest per capita rates of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls cases in the U.S. In the case of Kaisera Stops Pretty Places, an 18-year-old missing and murdered Indigenous women girl victim in Bighorn County has disturbing symmetry to Ashley's case in terms of investigative ineptitude. The 2021 documentary Say Her Name is an expose on the crisis in Bighorn Country, which was made to encourage Attorney General Garland to launch a federal investigation into the situation. There is no time to waste. The alleged recent engagement of the BIA Office of Justice Services Missing and Murdered Unit is insufficient. It is a sad commentary that Gabby Petito's life had to be taken before the national media woke up to the ongoing and generational devastation of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls and the systemic prejudice not only in the approach of law enforcement and prosecutors, but also in the media by its dereliction to give equal attention to missing and murdered women of color. The ABC's primetime series, Big Sky, appropriated the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls tragedy in Montana, yet erased Indigenous women and girls from its first episodes, underscores the necess- excuse me, the necessity for the call invisible no more. In closing, the gravity of this situation requires me to reiterate that the time for platitudes and incremental measures is over. I want to read that again. The gravity of this situation requires me to reiterate that the time for platitudes and incremental measures is over. From the White House to the Department of Justice to Interior in the U.S. House and Senate, meaningful action must be forthcoming. Good words don't bring the missing home or justice for the victims. This tragedy is being compounded and is escalating due to inadequate and underfunded resources for law enforcement in Indian country. As I write, some 7,000 Indigenous women, girls, and men have been reported as missing or murdered. This past April 2021, a three-year-old toddler, Arden Pepion, was reported missing on the Blackfeet Nation. The following week, 26-year-old Leo Wagner was reported as missing on Blackfeet Nation. Neither Arden or Leo have been found, and just like Ashley, law enforcement has given up. Sadly, the families of the missing are again out there looking for their loved ones without any assistance from the agencies who take an oath to serve and protect, but who instead have pathetically resigned to the notion that they can no longer do anything. The Loring Heavy Runner family deserves justice. Why continue to make them suffer and to feel like Ashley's life doesn't matter? There must be a thorough Department of Justice investigation into the egregious failures in this case and a real investigation launched now to find Ashley. I welcome the opportunity to discuss ways to address these important issues of our missing Indigenous people. Thank you. Respectfully, Timothy Davis, Chairman of Blackfeet Tribal Business Council. And again, this speaks to all of those who are missing from these reservations because this is, and this is also to say like right here, the focus is on women and girls. But like I said, 
men as well are obviously missing here and trafficking and drugs and all of these things and the lack of law enforcement and the resources, they all play into it. So hopefully this is another step in the right direction toward acquiring the proper funding and training, as well as holding those accountable for assuming the role of searching for these missing people before they become another one of the murdered. In Matthew's case, as well as Ashley's, the FBI confirms that they are continuing to investigate the murder of Matthew Grant, as well as the disappearance of Ashley Loring Heavy Runner. As of 2019, Grant's case was in the hands of the third FBI agent, making the family feel as if they were starting over yet again, as his case is passed from agent to agent year after year, all while Rhonda and the others are left to wonder who the next victim of these sick yet seemingly powerful people in this town will be, and whether it could be another one of her family members. Recently, the Department of Justice added Blackfeet Nation to its tribal access program for use of federal databases and also gave them a grant for tribal prosecution services. However, I want to ask, in order to prosecute, do we not need to see arrests being made and action being taken? As Rhonda Grant Connolly said, the dead cannot cry out for justice. It is the duty of the living to do so for them. Thank you for listening to Murder and Mediumship. Please share this episode so that more may hear the story of Matthew Grant and other Native Americans missing from Blackfeet Nation and reservations around the country.